Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a Q&A this Monday. There will be some theological questions, some practical questions, asking for advice. Those are my favorite kind of questions. I love giving you guys like real relationship advice and things like that. But we're going to talk about a variety of things. I might touch on uh, a couple news stories that I didn't get to last week. If you missed the Culture War episodes, really all last week was about culture wars. Monday, we talked to a journalist about uh, the transgender contagion. On Wednesday, we talked about Black Lives Matter and the ideology behind that organization. And then Friday, we talked about another part of the culture wars, the deconstruction of objectivity and how we can push back and continue to try to create a republic where we do have free and open debate, which is so important for progress, no matter which side of the aisle that you're on. Today, I'm going to answer uh, a few of the questions. Some of them have to do with that. Some of them are totally um, unrelated. But if you're more interested in a deep dive on those, definitely go listen to those as well. But today is a really fun episode. And then Wednesday, we will talk about some new stuff. Friday, I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have. I'm going to be talking about or talking to an expert on critical race theory. And it's just going to blow your mind. I'm so excited for you to listen to it. This guy is is I would say the foremost Christian expert on this stuff, and you will just be blown away by how this idea and how this um, thinking tool, if you want to call it that, this critical analysis tool is uh, infiltrating not just the world at large, but also uh, the church specifically. So I'm really excited about that conversation. But today, Today, we are going to talk about some of the questions that you guys sent me via Instagram. And one question that I got repeatedly is, how do I deal with working for a liberal employer and having liberal co-workers during this time? I have friends who ask me the same question who I try to give advice to, but let me just say, I have never, I've well, I can't say I've never been in that position. Maybe one time I've been surrounded by people who don't have uh, most of the same views that I do, but for the most part, I mean, I've only been out of college for six years now, and for about four of those six years, I have done what I'm doing now, and so I don't have the same challenge necessarily I have different challenges, but I don't have the same challenges as someone does who is working in a, you know, a normal corporate job or in a job where most of the people around you are liberal. I have friends who are dealing with the same thing where they'll be on a conference call and someone will uh, mention some random social or political issue that maybe didn't have anything to do with a work-related conversation and they just feel uncomfortable. They're not sure, should I push back on this? Should I say something? Is it, am I going to risk my job to say something? And I do think it's really difficult. And there are so many different factors that play into what you should do and having these kinds of disagreeing conversations and if you should have these kinds of disagreeing conversations. So I, I don't think it's productive and probably not best for you in so far as keeping your job and things like that to be the constant contrarian 
that is looking for an argument, that is looking for a fight, that is pushing back on everything that your uh, fellow uh, employees or your coworkers are talking about when it comes to social issues in politics. Uh, but I do think that you can pick your battles. For example, if they're talking about how, oh, pro-lifers are so ridiculous, they only care about life before birth and they don't care about people after that at all. They're so hypocritical and that's an issue that's close to your heart and you know that that's not true then it might be a great opportunity for you. And I would argue, especially with something that's literally a matter of life and death, it is worth you speaking up for it. You know, repercussions come what may uh, for you to say, hey, you know, I know this is really uncomfortable for me to say, but I actually am. I am pro-life. Like I'm against abortion. I would love to share with you my thoughts or maybe it's just asking them questions. This is a method that I find to be really very productive um, to be able to say, okay, why do you believe that. And I think it's very difficult to not come across when we're asking questions like that as uh, presumptuous or kind of on the attack, particularly because a lot of the people who are in the mainstream culture who are typically on the left are not used to getting their views challenged, especially depending on where you live. And so they might not like your questions, but if there's a way that you can strike a tone of curiosity and ask the people around you why they believe what they believe and ask them just, you know, to try to get a better understanding of where they're coming from, it might cause them to think a little bit more deeply about the things that they believe and for you to then offer um, what you believe. And I think that this can be very difficult and you kind of have to use wisdom and use discernment to decide which situations merit you speaking up and being that unpopular voice. And I think that goes, uh, that's the same for your conversations with your employer, with your employer, which are even more, I would say, dangerous, even more precarious, because you don't know if your employer is going to fire you, is going to mistreat you, is going to not give you a raise because they know that you're a conservative, but you know your employer obviously better than I do. And if there are policies coming down the pipeline or statements being made to represent your company that you think are destructive, that you think are wrong, that you think are deceitful, and you think that they would be willing to have a conversation with you, then I do believe that that dialogue is worth happening. And like we talked about on Friday, you never know. You never know which conversation is going to be the tipping point or is going to just lay the foundation uh, for whatever is the future tipping point. Again, I think it is so powerful when we just decide we're not going to capitulate. We're not going to go along with this. Like we're not going to pretend like objective truth is subjective. Like we're not going to pretend like fact don't matter. We're not going to stop bringing up different perspectives. And I understand it's very sensitive in the workplace, but if you are able to have a productive dialogue, for example, I talked about on Friday, this woman who works in STEM, she successfully changed a statement on anti-racism that her company was going to put out because she just kind of respectfully and curiously uh, poked holes in the statement to ask, okay, what does this phrase mean? Can you, we're apologizing for racism. Can you give me specific examples of how our con- or how, how our company has been racist? They were unable to provide examples. And so the end product for the statement about injustice actually did end up as something that was substantive. 
I think it's important also for you to make sure that people know that you care about a lot of the same goals that people on the other side of the aisle do. That, hey, you care about equal opportunity as well. You care about justice as well. You care about opportunity and you care about liberty and you care about compassion and all these things as well. Start with what you agree on, maybe back up from there and try to ask questions and present in a respectful way some of your concerns and your perspectives. Um, Of course, if you feel like it's not possible for you to do that without losing your job, and if you lose your job, you're not going to be able to provide for your family, then I would ask God to give you wisdom to help you. to help you share the gospel and glorify him in every way that you possibly can. That might be, he might uh, convict you and press you to speak up about a particular issue or that obedience and glorification of the Lord might manifest itself in different ways. But remember, ask God for wisdom in the book of James. God promises to give wisdom without reproach to those who ask for it. So uh, seek God and ask him for wisdom. He is never never going to shirk the responsibility or shirk the, um, yeah, shirk the responsibility that he has or the desire that he has to give you opportunities to give him glory. He always wants his own glory and his glory is our good. So if you ask for those opportunities to glorify him in whatever way he desires, he is going to give you those opportunities. He is going to give you the wisdom to empower you and enable you to do those things. And so that is uh, very good news. Remember, um, I was just reading in the book of Luke, I think it was, I think it's uh, Luke 6, that Jesus says, woe to you who uh, have everyone speaking well of you because basically, uh, you know, you have your reward is what the other woes in that segment, uh, in that segment talk about. So it is not a good thing if everyone is speaking well of you and thinking well of you because he says, so our forefathers spoke well of false prophets. And so everyone speaking well of you is not our goal and it's not an indication of righteousness and obedience to the Lord. We have to make sure that we are obeying God. And it doesn't matter what other people uh, say about us. And when we're not, when someone properly calls us out or rebukes us for something that is in disobedience to the Lord, whether it's a view or something that we do or say, then we should, and this is very difficult, including for me, we should be able to take that rebuke and to uh, repent and to uh, apologize and seek forgiveness for the things um, that we have actually done. Okay, before I answer the next question, I do want to tell you guys about one of my favorite sponsors, and that is Simply Safe. That is Simply with an I Safe. They have spent a decade fighting against complicated security systems that people never use that end up being completely ineffective. And so they developed this product that is really easy to use, really easy to set up, doesn't have these long, complicated contracts or any contracts or anything like that to be able to make sure that the people who use it are secure and they're confident in their security system. And this really is more important than ever. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7. Order online with just one click of a button, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come to disrupt your house. You don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract or anything like that, which is really good news for you commitment phobes. Simply Safe was named best overall home security up 2020 
by U.S. News and World Report, and their 24-7 professional monitoring and emergency dispatch starts at 50 cents a day. Head to simplysafe.com slash Allie and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That is simplysafe.com slash Allie, and my name is spelled A-L-L-I-E. Some of you still have not learned that. Okay, now next question that we have someone said tips for a non-shopper needing maternity clothes i have none lol um i totally understand i totally understand that so it depends on your makeup if you're like me like my belly got huge when i was uh pregnant and so i needed maternity clothes in that third trimester some people i have a friend that's pregnant right now she's like full-term pregnant she's just has like she's tall and thin so she has like a smaller bump i don't know maybe she doesn't even need maternity clothes some people will never need maternity clothes like you can just if you're someone who you know maybe you don't gain a whole lot of weight and your belly just gets to a nice small formidable size you might not even need maternity clothes you might just be able to take your jeans and this is a hack that people have used and take a hair tie and you loop it through the the loop of the buttonhole of your jeans and then you loop the other side. I don't know exactly how to explain this without showing you, and I don't have a hair tie on me. Um, you put the other side on the on the button, and so it expands, and you've got these makeshift maternity pants. That's what a lot of people have done and told me to do, um, and so that can work. There are a lot of good, um, just like uh, flowy dresses at Target. Like I was wearing a flowy dress on Friday on the podcast, not a maternity dress, but I wore a lot of things like that that weren't necessarily maternity, but they weren't very uh, fitted clothes. And so just go to Target, go to Gap, get things that are more loose fitting. You don't have to spend a whole lot of money. Now, I don't know how far along you are, but if you're pretty far along and it's going to be hot until you have the baby, like if you're due in September, just don't even wear pants. Like just wear a dress as much as you can. That is the good thing about being big pregnant in the summer months is that you don't have to worry about wearing super uncomfortable pregnancy pants. Now, if you're doing like January or something like that, then that's a little bit of a different story and you might have to splurge on some good maternity jeans. A lot of people like the panels on the side rather than the like band. I know this is really boring for all of you who don't care about this, but for those of you who are pregnant or maybe who will be pregnant soon, maybe this will be helpful. Um, People like the like the stretchy side panels on the pants rather than like the band around the pants because those fall down. I never found maternity pants that I like, um, but hopefully that was a little bit helpful. You don't even have to, you don't have to go to maternity segments in order to find good maternity clothes. That's the moral of that story. Congratulations, by the way. Um, thoughts on Kanye running for president. So I don't think that he can actually run for president. And I'm pretty sure that the time has come and passed for him to be able to do that. Maybe he runs in 2024. Look, more power to Kanye West for saying things that are unpopular and has been saying things that are unpopular for a long time. He is obviously a very brilliant artist who has, uh, who in a lot of ways changed the game for his industry and for his particular genre. And I do think that he has a lot of talent and a lot of knowledge in, uh, you know, multiple spheres. Do I think that? 
He is an expert on foreign policy. I don't know. Like, it's, you know, it's funny because Donald Trump, I probably would have said the same things about him. I probably would have said, well, he's a celebrity. He's a reality TV star. He's a real estate mogul. What does he know about being president of the United States? And he is president of the United States. And I know a lot of people disagree with me, but policy wise, he's done a really good job. And so who knows? Who knows? Maybe Kanye West would be able to just surprise us all. I do really appreciate the things that he has been saying about uh, being pro-life and how unborn life is human life and therefore is uh, deserving of human rights. I mean, that's a very logical view, but it's radical to a lot of people. He said he would run as a Republican if Donald Trump wasn't running as a Republican, but he would run as an independent. Again, I don't know if that's possible. This time around, if he runs in 2024, I just don't know. I mean, who knows what could happen? Who knows? I'm just trying to picture like debates, but maybe we won't even have debates by then. I, I it's it would be I just can't even imagine what a president Kanye West would be like. But again, I'm not saying that anything is impossible because if anything has been proven in this past year is that things are unpredictable. And even Donald Trump himself is a very unpredictable president. So we might have a president, Kanye West. We will see about that. Hey, I'll tell you, he would be a lot better, a lot better. I would vote for Kanye West any day over anyone in the Democratic Party right now. Uh, That is just that's just a fact. Someone asked thoughts on empathy. Have you covered it already? So this is a conversation that's been going on in reformed theological circles for the past, I don't know, a few months, a year, maybe longer than that. That's at least when I started noticing it. And I haven't really talked about it, but there's a lot of interesting dialogue around this concept of empathy and even the dangers of empathy. Now, here is my nuanced view of empathy. And I always want to give this caveat that I am not in pursuit of nuance. I'm always in pursuit of truth. Sometimes the truth is nuanced. Sometimes it's not. In this case, I'm not saying that I have all the answers or that I, uh, that I know everything about the subject. But my view of empathy is that there are some people who would say we shouldn't be empathetic at all, that empathy is actually bad, that it's counterproductive because you end up validating people's emotions that are not based in reality, and it actually causes them to go into more anxiety and even affirming you know, sinful thoughts and things like that, which I do understand. We talked about this. There's an episode of Relatable that I did a few months ago titled All the Feels. Maybe it was even a year ago now where we talked about this idea that all your feelings are valid. That is a very popular phrase nowadays in the in the world of self-love. And I actually talk about this in my book that's coming out August 11th that everyone should pre-order. You're not enough and that's okay. Escaping the toxic culture of self-love. But this idea that all your feelings are valid is very popular. And I think it's important for Christians to distinguish between valid feelings and feelings that exist. So valid means legitimate or true. So grounded in reality. Uh, Existent doesn't necessarily mean that they are valid and true. So while I do believe that we should take note of all of our feelings and that not all emotions are bad at all, and that emotions are, are 
part of human nature and part of what makes us made in the image of God. God himself expresses feelings and emotion throughout the Bible, and we reflect him in that way. And emotions are, are, are wonderful. They can be very good, but we subject our emotions to the word of God, to the uh, standard uh, standard morality, standard of morality that he has given to us in his word. And we tell our feelings to subject themselves and obey and bow down uh, to Jesus Christ. So this idea that all your feelings are valid, meaning legitimate or true, is simply not true. If you have feelings of jealousy or feelings of not measuring up to, you know, X, Y, Z person because she's skinnier or you are envious of her life because it looks like it's much more glamorous and better than yours or you desire her husband or your feelings of lust for someone, your murderous feelings of hating someone, of wanting something that is bad for them. They're not rooted in truth. And very often they're not even rooted in reality at all. Like how many times have you gotten angry at someone, maybe your spouse for um, doing something Thing that you thought that they did or you assumed that they meant that they actually didn't do or they actually didn't mean at all. Your feelings were existent and so they were real, but they were not valid because they weren't rooted in truth. And if you had acted on those invalid feelings, then you would have caused a fight. You would have caused tension where there didn't need to be when we should be saying, okay, I feel this way. Let's subject my feelings to reality and to the truth of God's word. So what that has to do with this idea of empathy, um, empathy is different than sympathy. Sympathy is feeling for someone and empathy is feeling with someone, putting yourself in their shoes. Can empathy in the same way that saying that all of your feelings are valid uh, be harmful because it affirms uh, people's uh, perspectives that aren't always true. Yes, it can be harmful when it is used in that way. If someone says, well, this is my truth or this is my experience and therefore I'm going to project my experience onto everyone else and call it reality or call it objective truth or when someone believes something or feels something that is not true and is not glorifying to God or leads to actions that are not glorifying to God, uh, then our empathy, our constant affirming of their feelings rather than redirecting them towards truth can obviously be harmful. That's not loving to them. It is not loving uh, to sacrifice the truth for empathy because it's like, for example, if your child comes downstairs and says, I am, I'm not sleeping upstairs. I'm not sleeping in my room ever again because there's a monster in my closet. Well, you could empathize with them completely and say, yes, all of your feelings are valid. And you know what? If you say that there's a monster in your closet, there is a monster in your closet and you never have to go in your room again. You have every right to feel that way. And you know what? You should feel that way. And who am I to say there's not a monster in your closet? That would not be the loving thing to do. The loving thing would to do would be to show empathy and say, oh, I totally get why you're scared. You know, I was I, I was scared like that when I was little too. When, you know, the, the lights turn out, things look different. That is totally understandable. But let's go back upstairs and let's turn on the lights and uh, I'll show you. See, there's no monster in here. You just saw, you know, your, your dress hanging on this hanger or whatever it is. And you can use that as 
has an opportunity to say, yeah, things look distorted in the darkness, but when you turn the light on and you see things clearly, you know that they're not there and you have to remember the light when you are in the darkness. And so, you know, you can use it as spiritual metaphor and all that good stuff, but you have to, in order to be loving, in order to allow your child to grow and develop and to see things rightly, which is what you want, and to have wisdom and to not be living in fear and to... um not be just following her emotions, even if they're not grounded in reality, you have to turn the lights on. Like you have to be able to show them truth. You have to be able to show them reality. That doesn't mean that you get mad at them for being scared. That doesn't mean that you chastise them for being frightened. No, you can still empathize with them. And this is where I disagree with the people who say, you know, we're not called to empathize. I disagree with that. I think mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice is a form of empathy. You are putting yourself in someone's shoes. You are loving your neighbor as you love yourself. You are treating other people the way that you want to be treated. I do think empathy is important in that way to be able to relate to someone's fears and to relate to someone's feelings and to not automatically shut those feelings down, but to listen to someone, to try to understand why they feel what they feel, and then to redirect them to the refreshing and the liberating truth of God's word. Or to, if you're just in a conversation about, you know, something political, for example, like an emotional argument is that human beings inside the womb aren't people, therefore they can be terminated. That is an emotional argument tried to, you know, make abortion sound better. Well, the loving thing to do if someone feels that way, if they feel that abortion isn't wrong, is to point them to embryology, to point them to the truth, to point them to logic. You can understand how they feel, especially if they have that experience in their past and you can love them and treat them with compassion while still saying, okay, but your experience doesn't speak to objective reality. Here's the scientific reality of what human life is inside the womb. Um, And so, It is loving to pair, in my opinion, empathy with truth and speaking the truth uh, in love. Before I answer a couple more questions, I do want to tell you guys about Laurel Springs. So there is a whole debate right now. There are some people that want kids to go back to school in the fall. There are some people who, you know, want to keep their kids at home. There are a variety of reasons on both sides. But if you are someone who is like, you know what, I kind of like, kind of like my kids being home. I kind of like this whole homeschooling thing. I like, I kind of like my kids being out of public school and being able to have more influence over their lives, which I think is awesome and very necessary for this next generation, then Laurel Springs might be the place for you. So online learning might be new for your family, but Laurel Springs has been doing this for nearly 30 years. As the experts in online learning, Laurel Springs has the tools in the curriculum your child needs to maintain their learning unhindered by whatever the future holds. Their flexible learning programs designed for students in kindergarten through 12th grade offer challenging and diverse courses. And Laurel Springs is accredited by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges and Cognia, which means their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. Register your child at laurelsprings.com slash Allie, A-L-L-I-E, and receive a waived registration fee. That is laurelsprings.com slash Allie for your waived registration fee. That is laurelsprings.com slash Allie. 
someone asked me what I think about the 1619 project being turned into curriculum for school. So obviously that's problematic because as I've said, there are people across the aisle who have critiqued the 1619 project for really being about narrative and not being about historical analysis. It's not about historical analysis. And I don't think it's harmful to listen to things that are that might offer a different perspective, but it bills itself as a serious historical project, and it is simply not that. It makes the argument that everything in America goes back to racism, that the reason we don't have universal health care is because of racism and white supremacy, and that we founded the revolution was actually primarily about slavery and not about independence at all, and that emancipation and how we've learned about emancipation and Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War is all wrong. And so it is driving a particular narrative about what America was founded on and what the principles of America are that are based on this I this idea of uh, racism being our origin and being a, a part of everything that America is and does, and that is simply not true. The revolution was not uh, about slavery. Were there people who believed that slavery was okay and even moral and even necessary? Yes. We, did we have founding slave uh, founding fathers who were slaveholders? Yes, we did. But the complex parts of history that are not talked about in this. 1619 project. First of all, it doesn't even really talk about the Civil War that hundreds of thousands of men gave their lives because they believed that slavery was a moral travesty. Like there's no other culture that sacrificed that much because uh, of the cause of the abolition of slavery as America did. And of course, this would not have happened. Abolition, emancipation wouldn't have happened uh, without African-Americans that were speaking up about this, like Frederick Douglass, for example. Um, But there were white Americans, there were black Americans who partnered together, who advanced the cause of abolition and emancipation. There uh, were, you would consider the people who were white in America, who lived in the North, who led the cause, uh, the union cause of the abolition of slavery, you would call them today the religious right. The 1619 Project hardly talks about the Civil War and hardly talks uh, about the abolitionists. I mean, the abolitionists of that day, some of them, the white abolitionists um, and the black abolitionists, but the white abolitionists as well uh, were Christians. Like they were motivated by their Christian faith to end slavery. And the 1619 Project gives no credit whatsoever uh, to the fact that there were people of all races that were coming together to end slavery, hundreds of thousands of them. I mean, William Lloyd Gary Garrison, the guy who started the abolitionist newspaper, uh, The Liberator, he had a huge impact and he spurred uh, a lot of the debate surrounding slavery that uh, created the conversation that sparked a lot of the conflict uh, that the Civil War was about. 1619 Project doesn't give credit to things like that. They don't give uh, credit to William Wilberforce, uh, for example, who, of course, was across the pond, who helped uh, bring the abolition of slavery. It is a very uh, narrow, narrative-driven 
so-called analysis, if you can even call it that, um, of American history. And there's a goal in mind. Like Nicole Hannah-Jones, the lead essayist of the 1619 Project, you can go back and you can read a lot of the stuff that she has written over the years since college until now. I mean, she believes really that white people are incapable of morality and basically incapable of goodness and that white people are the cause of all of the problems throughout the world and that America and American imperialism is the cause of all the problems throughout the world. And so these ahistorical ideas, which again, you can read in The Atlantic, you can read in The Washington Post, you can read in various outlets, the critiques of the 1619 Project. John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry have both talked about some of the problems with the 1619 Project and why historically um, it's just inaccurate and it's driving a particular side of the story, if you can even call it that, that is trying to shape the public consciousness about what we think about America and capitalism and all of our systems. And so that kind of ahistorical nonsense infiltrating our schools, it already has, by the way, like public institutions have been teaching this kind of thing for a long time. And I'm not saying that public institutions shouldn't teach the bad parts of our history. I think we should. I feel like my education did a really good job growing up of telling us about some of the brutal parts of American history and history in general. Um, while also making sure that we know that we are privileged to live in the freest and most prosperous country in the world and that the vast majority of the world will never be able to enjoy the liberty and the prosperity and the opportunities uh, that we enjoy. And also we learned about a lot of the progress that we have made. The 1619 Project, again, doesn't give any credit to. But this is all part of the plan to indoctrinate children and to make them um, hate the country so that they, too, can be revolutionaries that push for the toppling of the systems and the, the installation of Marxism, which Marxists believe will finally create some kind of utopian equality, but they don't really want equality. They really want retribution. They really want revenge for people who uh, they believe have been at least a part of groups that have traditionally oppressed the groups that they have been a part of. If it sounds nonsensical, that's because it is. If it sounds like that could lead to conflict and violence, that's because it does and it will. Now, Here's a question that I think kind of goes off of what we were talking about. And I touched on this on Friday. It's hard for me to see if these are the two worldviews that are represented or at least the two major worldviews that are represented. One, that America is completely and totally bad that we were founded on a farce, that there is nothing good about our foundation at all, that the ideals of liberty and justice for all, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence are bad, which, by the way, Frederick Douglass certainly did not believe. He believed the Constitution created the basis for anti-slavery, which I believe as well. Um, If we have that side of the country who believes that Uh, All freedom basically um, is bad if it creates any uh, kind of environment for the fostering of ideas that they don't like or what they would call intolerance or bigotry. If they believe that capitalism is bad, if the free market, that the free market is bad, that um, freedom of religion is bad. They believe all dissent is bad and should be stifled out. 
like that just cannot coexist with a group of people who believe that you should be able to say what you want to say. You should be able to worship what and how you want to worship. Uh, you should be able to, you know, petition the government and peacefully protest no matter what your uh, opinions are. And we believe that capitalism is good. We believe in equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Uh, we believe that we were given certain rights that were endowed to us by a creator, among them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that cannot be taken away by the government. Like, we just disagree, not on too much, but on too many fundamental foundational values that I don't know that we can ever come together. And it really goes back to the idea of who do you believe gave you your rights? Is it the government or God? If you believe the government gives your, you your rights and they have the right to take them away whenever they want to, and that's typically what people on the left believe. If you believe that God gave you your rights and the government has no right to arbitrarily take them away, so that is the different mindset. And if you believe that God exists, that he is the uh, objective moral standard bearer, like if you believe that he sets the standard for what is and what isn't, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's fair, what's unfair, what's just, what's injustice, then how you shape your society, how you shape your laws will be founded uh on that knowledge that all people are created equal and all of that. And your desire will be to get as close to that as you possibly can. If you don't believe in God and you just believe that we're all here by random chance, that people are not made in the image of God and that the government basically is your God, the government is supposed to take care of you um, and the government is supposed to give and take away your rights as they see fit. And freedom is not good if it allows for what they view as bigotry. Then again, like, I don't know, I don't know how we are going to be able to have a unified country. So people ask me, do I think that we're headed for a civil war? Well, gosh, I hope not. I really don't. Like, I am a proud American. I, I want to preserve the union. I don't, I don't want a civil war. I certainly don't want violence. I don't care if I disagree with you or not. I don't want your life ruined. I don't want you to be hurt. I don't want you to be harassed. I don't want you to be threatened. I don't want to go at war with you. Like, I, I don't want that at all. And uh, I don't want even a country where I agree with everyone, where everyone is on the same ideological page and we have all the same political opinions. We've never been like that in this country. Our founding wasn't like that. I am okay with having disagreements, but I want us to have some kind of base foundational agreement that I'm going to respect your disagreements, that we all agree that America's founding ideals are good. And even if we disagree on how they manifest itself, that we believe that America is good and that freedom is good and that our constitutional rights should be secure because they're given to us by at least some higher power. Like if we can agree at least on those principles, then I think that we can have a unified country. Now, that's going to mean pushing back against cancel culture. That's going to mean pushing back against mob tyranny. That's going to mean pushing back against this ridiculous notion that we have to tear down union statues and we we have to tear down Mount Rushmore. We have to tear down any monument to our founders or even Frederick Douglass has happened in Rochester, New York, in order to move forward. We cannot agree on that. Like we we can't come together and be unified. If you've got Marxist versus capitalist or a tyrant versus freedom fighters, like we're not freedom uh, appreciators, whatever it is, then we're not going to we're not going to be able to come together. And I don't know what the outcome 
is for that. Like, I don't I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this country is going to split up. It certainly seems like that is the inevitable outcome. I hope not. I really do. But it's hard for me to see how it is any other way. And if we do, I would love to take Hong Kong and all the people in Hong Kong that have now been taken over by the Chinese Communist Party who no longer have freedom of speech, who, by their way, at their protests, were waving American flags because everyone else who wasn't blinded by their own privilege, like America-hating liberals in the United States are, people around the world, they understand. They haven't bought into the propaganda. They understand that America is the place for liberty and justice for all. They understand that America is uh, the freest and most prosperous country in the world. That is why more immigrants come here than to any other country by far every year. And this Of course, I mean, a lot of times, not all the times, but a lot of times white liberals are the most like condescending towards minority groups than anyone else. And actually, there are a lot of people on the left, even Robin D'Angelo agrees with that. There was someone who commented on my Instagram saying, um, you know, the immigrants who come here are duped and they're, they're duped into thinking that America is a great place and then they're thrown to the wolves. I'm sorry that you think that lowly of immigrants, that you think that they're naive fools who get here and are just wallowing in self-pity and failure. Have you actually looked at the success rate of immigrants in this country, especially for particular groups? It is really high. You can come here as an immigrant, and if you work hard and you take opportunities, there is a really, really good chance that you are going to do well for you and your family. That's why they come here, and they don't come anywhere else, because they they haven't been brainwashed by the anti-American propaganda in places like Hong Kong and other places. They realize that that no matter what America hating leftists say, America is the land of opportunity. And so anyway, if America splits up, which I hope it doesn't, but if it does, because we just cannot agree on anything, which is what it seems like, we can't agree on anything foundational, then I would like to take Hong Kong, who is now being oppressed under the communist dictatorship, I would like to bring them over here people who love freedom um, and who, you know, can offer a lot of awesome perspectives for us. I would like to bring them over here. And then everyone who wants communism, we can do an exchange program, voluntary, voluntary exchange program for all the Marxist communists here who think communism is great. We'll do a little exchangey, exchangey. We'll just take the Hong Kongers and we'll give the communists over to Hong Kong and then they can see what it's like to live under a communist regime. And they can tell us what they think about it. And when they're like, oh, no, please take us back for capitalism, uh, we'll say, okay, but before we do that, you have to pass this. You have to you have to pass at least a civics exam, because unfortunately, there are too many communists over here who don't even know the basics of American history. So if there is a voluntary Hong Kong exchange program, that is what I am proposing for the design of it. I think it could be I think it could be very good. I think it could be a very interesting experiment. I'm not interested in sharing a country with people who look like me. Don't care about that. I don't care about sharing a country uh, with people who have all the same political opinions as me or even who have all the same theological opinions as me. Uh, that's not what I'm looking for in a country. I'm looking for a country who 
uh, could be diverse in all of those things, but is unified in basic and foundational values. And that is what we are lacking today. And that is what I want. I hope it doesn't take any kind of splitting up or a major conflict for that to happen. Um, but that is the kind of country, ideally, that I am looking for, a diverse uh, society, ideologically, politically, uh ethnically to have all the different perspectives, but united in our love for liberty and uh, in the foundational constitutional values that America should hold dear because it's made us the greatest country in the world, even with all of our flaws and failures. Okay. I kind of went a long time on all of those questions and I have a lot more questions that I could answer, but you guys ask good questions and they require good answers and long answers and thorough answers. Anyway, I'll be back here on Wednesday. Let me know if there are particular things and stories that you guys want me to talk about and I will be glad to touch on them. I'll see you guys then. 